Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we are very pleased to have a very special guest on the show. We will be talking with author Mark Harris, whose new book, Mike Nichols, A Life, is currently in stores. The book is a birth-to-death biography of Nichols's work from his time immigrating to the United States as a child from Germany to his work on the stage, to directing films like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Graduate, The Birdcage, and the miniseries Angels in America. It's a fantastic book that really demystifies a lot, not just about Nichols' career, but the art of directing. So we're so pleased to have uh, author Mark Harris here with us today. Your first two books are centered around sort of With Pictures at a Revolution, it's five films, and then Five Came Back was around five directors and their time during World War II. But this is, as the book is called, a life. So where do you start with writing a biography of someone like Mike Nichols? Uh, That was a question I had when I started research on this. I mean, I knew it was very different than uh, anything I'd written before. Um, And uh, at first, I thought it was going to be easier uh, in that, you know, it didn't present the structural challenges that the first two books did, where I was constantly cutting between um, five different plot lines and looking for places to merge them. This was just going to be one linear thing. And then I realized I had disadvantaged myself because I had nothing to cut away to anymore. My, my favorite trick, you know, when when one plot line went dry was to jump to another one. And I wouldn't have that uh, in this book. So where I started was just... Um, the way I always start, which is uh, just researching and putting everything into a a really specific timeline, you know, years, but where I can months and then even days, because I find that um, so many of the questions that I have when I'm researching something, which is basically why did this happen this way? You can get closer to an answer if you know exactly when everything happened. So that was the beginning of my research for this. When you started doing your interviews, was there a specific film or play or moment in Mike's life that you kind of initially thought maybe that'll be a shorter section of the book? And then as you did interviews, it kind of opened up into maybe more insight or connected more to what you were gathering. Yeah, um, th- that's a good question. It's it's an interesting thing. I didn't, while I was doing the interviews and while I was doing, you know, also the, the library research and the reading for this, because that was a really big part of it too. Um, I was not trying to think like I I was trying to avoid the question for myself of how large a space something was going to occupy in the book because you know I certainly didn't want to get into the head where the hits were going to take up more space than the flops I mean I knew obviously that that I was going to go long on things like the graduate and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf and um Silkwood, uh, but you know, I I think flops can tell you a lot, and so I tried not to make any judgments. For instance, about um, a movie like Day of the Dolphin, in terms of how much space it was going to get, it was it was really all about what I could find out, and and then eventually what how interesting is it? How much does it serve the story? I mean, no one would say that Catch Twenty Two is one of uh, Mike's biggest hits or or a hit period but it's 
an absolutely fascinating milestone in his creative evolution. And it tells like you, you can't really understand where he goes from there unless you understand that movie and what the making of it entailed. This is also a unique book because for Nichols, you're jumping between not just films, but also his stage work. And for films, any reader can sort of seek out those films. But what is it? What were the challenges in conveying what the stage work is for for an audience that would never have seen uh, these particular performances staged? Right, and a lot of that time, a lot of the time, that audience included me. I mean, you know, there are. Uh, at the, the Performing Arts Library at Lincoln Center in New York, which is where I did a lot of my research, there are some of his uh, plays videotaped and preserved that way. But certainly when you're talking about the beginning of his career, things like all the Neil Simon plays, Barefoot in the Park and The Odd Couple, there's nothing on film at all. It was a real challenge for me. I had never written at any length about theater before. And to try to convey... Um, what a production was and what was special about it and to put myself in the head of an audience walking into a Broadway theater in 1963 or 1965 um, seeing one of those plays for the first time it was really tricky so obviously wherever I could um, I talked to people who had seen the production or had been involved in it. And I got really lucky, for instance, in that the two stars of Barefoot in the Park were still available to talk and interested in talking. And, and um, but, but, you know, that's unusual. Like Robert Redford and Elizabeth Ashley were both very young in 1963. So I got lucky in that way, but there's almost no one left from a number of the plays. Although in almost every case, I was able to find someone, um, someone in it or someone involved. And, and, uh, you just, I, I tried as best I could to kind of give you the experience of what it was like sitting in the theater, whether it was for something as light as um, Barefoot in the Park or as intense as Streamers. Um, and then once we got into like the 80s, I was lucky enough to have seen some of those productions. And so I was able to rely a little more um, on my memory and also the more recent uh, productions obviously have more um, people still alive to talk about them. One of the things I really love about the book is how eloquently you kind of get at, I, I mean, for us or for humans, there's like this public facing persona we present to people. And then there's maybe our private life. That's a little different with Mike. He was a storyteller from the beginning. It's clear. He loved to tell stories about people, but also about himself. And I think you, you find a really eloquent way of not like trying to parse through to the truth, but uh, you know, specifically I'm thinking about when uh, Mike told the story about losing his virginity, you tell the story as Mike told it. And then you talk about like, you know, knowing everything we know about Mike, it's a little hard to imagine that happening. And I'm wondering how you kind of approached, not necessarily trying to get to the truth, but uh, balancing, you know, this life that Mike presented with the one that he internalized and then really kind of came uh, to face later in life as he started thinking more about his childhood. Yeah, I mean, as you said, we all put one face out to the world to some extent that, that doesn't 100% match, uh, you know, who we are when we're alone. Um, but with someone like Mike, um, you know, because he arrived in America speaking no English, because he lost his hair at a very early age and looked different from other kids, uh, that the creation of that 
outward self, that public self, took a lot more effort from the very beginning than it would for you or for me. You know, he told George Siegel, it takes me three hours every day to become Mike Nichols. So I, I thought about that a lot because, um, you know, I think, I, I think you can easily get into a place where um, you say, oh, well, he told this story, but um, it didn't, doesn't really seem to have been true. So he was lying. And it's nothing is that simple. You know, um, stories get embellished over the years with retelling. And for Mike in particular, um, you know, some of the early stories that he told were really in a way a matter of survival. He had to create a self that, that um, was was something he could sustain in the world um, against uh, injury or insult or, or things like that. So, uh, you know, I deliberately started the book in the first couple of pages with the story he liked to tell about coming over on uh, the boat, uh, just because I wanted to pick something that, that the, the, the plain facts of which were true. He, he was, you know, absolutely, uh, an immigrant, he really did come over that way. But whether the the beautifully ornamented detail was true, that the only two lines of English he spoke were, I do not speak English and please do not kiss me. It, we don't know. Um, but we do know that he, he was able to take a kind of traumatic thing from early childhood and polish it into a story that both revealed something about himself and hid something about himself. And, and that felt like, I guess, almost a signal to the reader, I hope, that that, that was something that they should maybe look out for throughout the, throughout the book and throughout his story. Um, it, it, seems, it seems very, you know, apt for him that he wrote his own kind of creation myth. <laughs> I'm curious because you have the privilege of, of knowing Nichols during his life and, but in the later part of his life. And I was curious how that perception of him changed over the course of your research from the person that you knew. And then the more digging you did, how that shifted over time. Um, I certainly knew Mike's earlier work, but, but yes, I knew him in his seventies and, and his early eighties, you know, the last 12 or 14 years of, of his life, um, which were, by all appearances, an incredibly happy time, an incredibly fulfilled time, a time when um, he had been able to put to rest many of the things that he had wrestled with for his entire life. And I don't think I understood from knowing him in those years, um, just how hard won that was, how much work it was for him to get to a place where he wasn't struggling with anger all the time and he wasn't struggling with uh, depression, which was uh, something I really didn't know about until I started to do research. Um, so, so I think that was the big uh, surprise for me that, that um, I mean, I certainly went into the book knowing that uh, there were huge parts of Mike's life and past that I was ignorant of. Um, that, that what I knew about Mike or what I thought I knew about Mike was far outweighed by what I didn't. Um, so I tried to 
kind of let myself be available to be surprised and 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 I was a lot of the time it's fascinating because I think you know you think of Mike Dickles and he you know through his films it's so clear he understands human behavior so well um, and he has so many adoring, you know, Steven Spielberg, Meryl Streep, they just adore and love Mike Nichols. But something I found really fascinating is book, in the book is you also shine a spotlight on the people who felt like, you know, he didn't shine his light on me, or he was a little rough on me, or, you know, firing Manny Patinkin, but not doing it himself, having someone else do it. Um, and it's, it, you know, a recurring theme of the book I found fascinating is him realizing he's being a jerk and making the commitment to not be a jerk again. And then you can kind of see it happening again on other projects. I was curious, you know, it, what, what your perspective on that was, because to me, it felt truthful to life is like change is not as quick as a light bulb switch. And like, all right, I am no longer going to, you know, yell at people like I yelled at Dustin Hoffman or made fun of his body when his shirt was off and stuff like that. Right. I mean, there are very few stories in life that we can tell about ourselves that end with, and so I never, ever did that again. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's a climb upward. We, often we can say things like, and so I did it less often, or I thought twice before doing it after that. But Mike could, ha, had a, a, a mean streak, a cold streak, uh, and I really took my cue about that from, uh, from Mike himself. It was something that he spoke about very openly you know when i interviewed him for my first book about the making of the graduate um that was in some ways the most emotional part of uh talking about it for him that he that he realized uh, he, he told a story about very late in the shoot um when they were trying to i think steal some footage on sunset boulevard and he snapped at the crew and he was with robert surtees the cinematographer uh and um uh he he said i should i should really apologize to them shouldn't i and and Surti said oh it's way too late for that uh i was so struck when mike told me about that uh, at how um quickly he was able to retrieve the the emotions the shame the the embarrassment of that it, you know it was a really important part of his story of his story to him that he had behaved in ways uh that he wasn't proud of um and, and so i didn't want to hide that or or downplay it in the book because it was something he talked about it was something other people spoke about and it felt to me a, a really meaningful part of his journey through life and just to piggyback onto that i mean the graduate is one of my favorite films and i loved reading about it in pictures out of revolution and i was curious how you pursued writing about the film again but you didn't want to just obviously repeat what you had already written the first time so i was curious how writing about the graduate uh this time for for this biography changed <laughs> i really would say that there's no part of the book i dreaded having to write more than the graduate part maybe angels in america for different reasons but but i i had never had that experience of having to write about the same thing twice and i couldn't even say to myself um well but this time it's from a completely uh different perspective because it isn't a completely different perspective you know mike and his decisions on the making of the graduate were a really important part of my first book so i I mean, what was fortunate for me is I, I, I reread what I had written early on, but only early because I didn't want it too much in my head. Um, and then I, I 
deliberately left it alone for, for a really long time. And I didn't have a lot of new research that I had to do on, on The Graduate compared to all of uh, Mike's other movies, because I really had done that work back in, you know, 2006 uh, or so. Um, so I tried not to think too hard about The Graduate almost until it was time to write it. And then I watched it again two or three times in a row for the first time in a really long time. And, and I mean, I can't assume, of course, that uh, anybody read my first book. That would be crazy. So, so I just felt like my job is to write it for people who don't know any of what I was saying. And then I did go through it uh, once or twice uh, with the other book in my hand to try to make sure that I wasn't literally, I mean, I certainly reused some quotes and some stories. I tried not to reuse phrases like pieces of my own writing. And I, I hope I, I mostly didn't. Um, but well, it shows up on Reddit and they're comparing different. <laughs> yeah, was, Harris is plagiarizing himself. <laughs> if, if someone really, really has too much time on their hands, I think they could have a good <laughs> afternoon doing that. Um, it, it was a really tricky thing. I mean, one thing I tried to keep in mind was that in the first book, The Graduate was kind of the point. At least it was the point of that storyline. And in this, um, I was I was driving through The Graduate on my way from somewhere else to somewhere else. Um, and, and so I, I, I tried to kind of make it more a part of a, a journey perhaps rather than a destination uh, than I did the first time. Um, something else I wanted to ask you about uh, with Nichols' uh, filmography is that he really seems to be a director that while sexuality in films obviously was, was coming up in Europe, he seemed to bring it to Hollywood with, you know, the frank discussions of sexuality through Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and then depictions and The Graduate. Um, even Catch-22 has a bit of that. And then, of course, Carnal Knowledge and really sort of changing the game. And I was curious where you think that sort of came from, his sort of openness with sexuality that I don't think, I mean, obviously, obviously his, you know, his peers were sort of around that, but I don't think they broke through in quite the same way that he did. It's a really interesting question because that, that really does define the first part of his career. And he, he comes back to it uh, again, you know, as late as, as uh, closer um, on film and, uh, and even later than that with Betrayal on stage, which he directed when he was in his 80s. Um, you know, I, I think that you can't, um, you can't underestimate the, the significance of uh, Elaine May. One thing about the two of them working on stage is that there was a kind of sexual energy at times between them. Um, you know, it wasn't, Elaine wasn't just sort of comic relief or, or a clown or anything like that. She, she could play those, those erotic scenes. And one of their, you know, uh, one of their signature scenes was, was the teenager scene where they were, you know, trying to decide whether to make out. She was the one who said that every scene should be either a seduction, a negotiation, or a fight. And and a lot of the scenes were seductions or fights that turned into seductions or seductions that turned into negotiations that became fights. So I think um, Mike from a very early age, from his 20s, was, was aware of uh, 
the energy that a sexual dynamic could have in performance. And uh, he just sort of gravitated to that. I mean, it's obviously built into uh, the material that he chose in terms of uh, Virginia Woolf and The Graduate, but but he did choose it. And, um, you know, he, he says uh, at some point when somebody is asking him, uh, to kind of give a coherent explanation of his work, uh, you know, as if as if he had not only um, directed but written all of the movies that he had made, and and he says, you know, I don't think I can narrow it uh, uh, down to anything uh, more specific than a lot of it is about something going on between uh, a man and a woman, and usually it's uh, centered on a bed, um, and you know that's. Uh, it's 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 true it, it is something he came back to over and over and over again and something that he 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 was comfortable with the discomfort it caused you know he he liked that he 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 didn't mind if it uh made the hairs on the back of your neck stand up or made you sweat a little bit he, he thought that was a good thing i think it's also interesting, and from my perspective, um, as someone who was younger and coming up in the 90s, Mike Nichols was pretty influential to me in presenting stories of gay characters in commercial projects. So The Birdcage and Angels in America specifically, to me, um, where gay characters were not side characters or you know necessarily the butt of jokes. And obviously in your book, it gets into a little bit of, um, it showed his age a bit in terms of the language that he was using in The Birdcage and his discomfort on Angels in America. But again, his willingness to kind of push into that and and make those characters uh, lead characters and, and dig into that kind of you know a, a sexuality he was unfamiliar with from his previous work, it seemed. Yeah, and and you know, it's I was interested when I was researching the book to to find all the little places that it came up uh, even before the '90s. Like Edward Albee uh, was was gay, and there was this kind of voguish critical take on um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf when it opened on Broadway in 1962. That it was really a play about two men and in, in kind of a sham marriage, and that it was disguised. So, so even early on, uh, when he's not dealing with um, gay stories explicitly. There are moments when he's playing with it. I mean, there's there's a powerful strain of um, homoeroticism in in Streamers, which was uh, on stage in 1977, way before the Birdcage. Um, there, uh, there's a recurring thing that Nichols is really interested in. Uh, about male sexual competitiveness that gets into sort of not explicitly gay territories, but but implicitly gay territory. And you see that everywhere from closer to carnal knowledge. And then there are gay characters that he just will throw in sometimes as uh, part of the landscape. There are two cater waiters gossiping with each other in um, heartburn, you know, and one of those could have really been like prior Walter. I mean, it's it's the same time. Um, there's a moment in uh, Postcards from the Edge where two gay fans come up to Shirley MacLaine and one of them says, oh, I do you in my act. Um, so, you know, Mike was always really comfortable around gay people and and he just, he made them part of, of the fabric of the world that he was um, depicting on screen in a way that a lot of his contemporaries did not. I mean, gay people were just, um, 
they didn't exist in in most of the movies that men of Mike's generation made. One of the things I really love about this book, and I think it really sort of highlights Nichols's gift, is his ability to direct actors. Because I think that as a as viewers, we don't necessarily, it's easier for us to pick up on, oh, that was an, a well-composed shot or a really interesting edit. But we don't necessarily compute like, oh, the performance just comes from the actor. And I was curious if you think that Nichols maybe doesn't receive the same sort of, I guess, auteur cred as some of his peers, because what he's doing is, is more invisible. Uh, even though throughout the book, you're seeing he, his way of dealing with actors gets these great performances time and again, if the actor is on his wavelength. Other oh, some clearly don't respond to, you know, I'm telling a story and this story will illuminate what I want. Oh, completely. And, you know, all you have to do is look at this moment, um, count up all of the awards and nominations that uh, Chadwick Boseman and Viola Davis and Glenn Turman and Coleman Domingo have received uh, for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And now tell me how many Best Director nominations George Wolf has gotten for this movie. I mean, directors who know how to elicit fantastic performances from an entire cast are always, always underrated. Um, they're always underappreciated by critics. And, and that was absolutely uh, a Mike Nichols signature, um, both on stage uh, and on film. Um, he, he really had this unique ability to kind of First of all, his eye for casting was really fantastic and he knew how important that was. And, and on the occasions when his eye wasn't fantastic, that was when he really felt most at sea. I mean, if, if, if Mike felt that he had made a mistake in casting, it was very, very hard for him to get past it. But when he did cast correctly, he really had this ability to understand what a performer needed, to understand the particular kind of language he could use with a performer, whether it was asking them questions about their own history of feelings or relationships or something, or whether it was telling them stories from his own life that would break something open, or whether it was giving them a sort of game, something to try, uh, you know, that his ability to do that was really extraordinary. And um, it was there by all accounts, from the very first work he did on stage with Elizabeth Ashley and Robert Redford in Barefoot in the Park. They each needed completely different things. And um, he essentially taught each of them how to steal the show from the other. And then just, they were off to the races and made it into this kind of fantastic comedy acting competition every night. Um, so, yeah, he, you know, I think that goes again back to his work with Elaine May and, and uh, toward the, the fact that he really started as an actor, um, an actor with a really acute understanding of when you had the audience in the palm of your hand, when you were losing it. Um, I mean, Mike used to say this was about his theater directing, but he used to say that he could walk into a, a theater where one of his plays was playing you know, and even during a dramatic scene where there was dead silence in the audience, he, he could know whether the play was holding them or not just by the way the audience was collectively breathing. And um, I, I think that that's an instinct that many, many actors have. And 
Mike is someone who held on to it as a director and was able to use it to help other actors. Well, it's interesting because he, you know, he proved in his first few films, he could do the elaborate camera stuff. Like even on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, it's his first film. He talks about, you know, he gets a film school from Anthony Perkins, but then he's butting heads with the cinematographer because instinctually to him, there's only one place to put the camera. The Graduate has these iconic shots. Um, you know, even Catch-22 has a bunch of elaborate camera moves, but then he knows, he understands that I missed the force. Like I, I was so focused on these big elaborate shots and these long takes, I didn't hone in on the performances. So it's kind of like, it doesn't matter if you don't show us that you're doing long takes. It's not really directing if you're not showing off with the camera. Right. I mean, there's this really interesting break. It's a literal break because he doesn't make a movie for um, seven or eight years uh, after the fortune until he comes back with Silkwood. Um, and his approach after that, after he comes back and for the rest of his career is really different because um, his, his technique becomes in some ways uh, less visible, less apparent, but what's really happening is that it's it's more harnessed to whatever he thinks works for the story and for the actors and for the kind of movie he's trying to make um you know he he goes through this interesting phase that he talked about later where for a while he thought like oh everything should play out uh in in takes that are as long and unbroken as possible because that's the purest kind of filmmaking we should have um just not very many cuts and you know he does that in carnal knowledge to great effect uh at some points you know really long flowing scenes and then a few years later he does it in the fortune and it doesn't work quite as well and i was so interested by the fact that when he came back with silkwood he sort of says to himself why did i care so much about um whether I was holding shots for a long time or cutting, I should just do what works best for the scene. Um, and, and so what happens starting in the early eighties when he starts directing movies again regularly is uh, this, this embrace of uh, technical skill as a means to an end rather than as an end. Um, the end for him is realizing a story or a performance or both as beautifully as possible and the means is whatever works uh he becomes less interested in each movie being a new chapter in the articulation of an overall personal vision and um more interested in each movie as its own self-contained goal I think he really accomplishes it. I mean, Silkwood is, is very good. And I like the way that he, he still manages. I think technically that film is, is pretty stunning with the, especially the energy around the, the nuclear plant scenes. But when you get to Heartburn, I think it's a really fascinating turn about how it's like, it, it almost is an evolution of Silkwood. How can I tell a story of this woman who, you know, and, and really put that at the forefront. And I think Heartburn um, is a film that didn't really seem to get the credit it deserves and yet watching it it felt like a very thoughtful portrayal of a marriage even with all the restrictions to be like you can't say anything bad about carl bernstein the carl <laughs> bernstein character yeah i mean of all of his movies um heartburn is the one that right now i most love putting in front of people because it seems to be such a pleasant surprise for them it's a movie that got a pretty bad rap i think when it first opened because it really could not 
um, get out from under all of this public curiosity about the the incredibly uh, public uh, and and quarrelsome way in which um, that marriage ended, and there was so much attention paid to that. But when you look at it now, um, it has all of uh, Mike Nichols' strengths as a director, you know, his, his attention to detail, his his exact understanding of the particular social cast that these people occupy, his love of performance, um, his, his love of actors who come up with a physical way to express something that maybe is underscoring something they're saying or maybe is at odds with something that they're saying. And there are great moments of technique in it. I mean, there's a, there's a long... Uh, shot in which um, uh, Meryl Streep's character, Rachel, is uh, at, at a beauty salon and she's overhearing a conversation and as she overhears it, she's re she realizes just in no uncertain terms that uh, her husband is cheating on her. And um, it's, Nichols does something he doesn't do anywhere else in the movie, which is just, he holds on her face and moves slowly in. And it's something like a two minute shot of her listening, um, just because that is exactly what is needed for that moment, that suddenly you're in her head with her. Um, you're not watching what's going on in the, the salon, you're watching her realize something. And of course, Streep is, you know, an actress who can, can do that, you know, can hold the screen for two minutes without saying a word. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, that movie is a beautiful example, I think, of Nichols in his element, really alert to the possibilities of, of storytelling and, and uh, thinking very clearly, what does this movie need? What does this story need? And it's also a very kind of signature Mike Nichols movie because he fired someone. I mean, he, it's a movie he went into with uh, Mandy Patinkin, uh, who he after one week of shooting, um, felt was the wrong leading man. He felt he had made a mistake. And so he replaced him with Jack Nicholson. Um, and, and that too was a very, um, was a very Mike thing, even though it was extremely painful. Uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't just shrug and say, oh, well, let's make the best of it. Um, I think he really thought that making that change was worth the pain it would cause everyone, including him. We're both big fans of Heartburn and I saw it and I was like, why didn't people like this movie? And then your book just perfectly illuminates just the abject misogyny of of the critical reception of like, is Mike Nichols just making women's pictures now? Or, you know, it's not really that big of a deal. Why did this couple split up? And, you know, there's not enough in there when it's, it's as you said, it's exactly zeroed in on this woman's perspective of her marriage falling apart. Yeah, that was something that I didn't remember at all from uh, Heartburn. Um, opening like I, I remembered that the critical reception had been fairly indifferent but I did not recall that it had all specifically focused at least everything that men wrote about it specifically focused on uh bewilderment over this question of why would you make this woman's picture why would why would you make uh, such a one-sided movie like surely he must have left her for a reason like that that is said over and over and over again in the reviews and it was a complete surprise to me I have to admit you know as I read through all of the reviews I could find from 1986 seeing that they all landed on this same uh, uh, question that that um, just 
completely frustrated them. Well, and speaking of another film that, you know, it flopped with critics was Catch-22, which is such a, a turning point film because up to that point, he's basically everything, he has the Midas touch. His plays are huge hits. He's winning Tonys. He, may, he His movies are winning Oscars. And then Catch-22 is this passion project of his. And he goes into it and it's, it becomes a production that's very, it, it doesn't go well. It starts, you know, leaking out that it's not going well. And then it seems to be a victim of timing more than anything else. I mean, I watched the film and I was like, I don't understand why people don't like this because I thought it was a very strong war satire, which may not have been, you know, as faithful to the book as some had wanted, but hit its larger themes. And yet then I read, oh, MASH came out. <laughs> and so I just, I, it was curious to see how something that was completely out of his control, you know, I wonder what your thoughts on how much that affected Catch-22. Well, I think that that's something that we see all the time now. I mean, any of us who cover movies in 2021, like we've all had the experience of a movie having so much publicity uh, around it that by the time it opens, you already know too much about it. Um, and also all movies are, are hostage to whatever's going on in the world and in the culture at the moment they're released. So now when I watch Catch-22 side-by-side with M.A.S.H., I think, frankly, that there are a lot of ways in which Catch-22 holds up very, very well and M.A.S.H. doesn't. And I say that as a big admirer of uh, Altman, but there, there are things in, in M.A.S.H. that have not aged well. Um, but, you know, at that moment, in the thick of the Vietnam War, um, both of those movies were trying to do uh, the same thing, which was to use a different war to make a point about uh, what was what was going on in the world at that moment. And and uh, you know, it, in some ways, that was a really tricky thing for Catch Twenty Two already because the the world that Catch Twenty Two, the movie entered in 1970 was very different from the world of the novel, which was published in 1962. So Mike was already trying to do something different with the material than, than Joseph Heller had, had done. It was so hard for people not only to see Catch-22 out of the context of MASH, which they had just seen and which was this huge sensation, um, but also out of the context of this barrage of, of press about how much Nichols had spent on it and how difficult the production was and how much uh, it, it had cost Paramount, which was in danger of bankruptcy. And, and you know, it was really, the, the time was, was really perfect for an anti-Nichols backlash. Uh, you know, the, the feeling that he had had too much success too soon in two mediums and here he was not even 40 years old you know it, it uh, a sort of uh tailspin uh crash narrative was really ready to to um to happen it just needed uh an occasion and catch 22 certainly um provided that occasion but i think it's a really interesting movie and i think um it's of all of of all the movies of Mike's that I heard Mike talk about. That was the one where I think he himself was 
most divided. There, there were times when he would disparage it and just say, we missed, you know, we tried something and we couldn't do it. And there were other times when he would sort of admit that he actually liked a lot of it and, and, and was proud of a lot of it. I certainly think, you know, it's, it's very underseen. Like a lot of people haven't seen uh, Catch-22. And if you're at all interested in him as a director or in the movies of the 1970s, you've really got to check it out. Well, that, that context is key. And something that I think your your book does really well is is kind of dismantling this idea that a filmmaker is, well, most filmmakers are like curating their filmographies of like, and then this one I do next, and then this one I do next, and they're all going to be perfect. You know, why did he make Biloxi Blues? Well, people didn't know. He just suffered a mental breakdown and needed to do something simple. Um, why did he make Wolf? Because he's friends with Jack Nicholson. That, you know, that was still a little bit baffling, but, you know, it, it dismantles this idea that everything is perfectly curated because sometimes he just wanted to work and sometimes his heart was in it. Sometimes his heart wasn't entirely in it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, I think people make movies for all kinds of reasons. Um, and and I, I, those of us who write about movies tend to be really um, enthralled by directors who do seem to be kind of self-curating as they go. I mean, I, I think of Quentin Tarantino, who's probably been the most... Um, explicit of all directors about saying that. I mean, he's said he he wants to make 10 movies and then call it a day. He, if you watch his movies, there are many ways in which they do add up to, to a kind of single cohesive body of work. But, and that is, that's one way to work and not a way that I'm disparaging at all, but it's, it's an exceptional way to work. It's really unusual. Most careers don't unfold that way. Most acting careers don't unfold that way and most directing careers don't unfold that way. You, you sometimes take a job because it's something that you've wanted to do for years. Sometimes you take a job because you need money or you have a slot open or you just read a script that you really like or you would do anything to work with this actor or actress again. Um, uh, I, I, one thing I put in the book that, that made me laugh so hard when I heard it is that the reason he directed the um, live version of uh, Gilda Radner's show on Broadway, which is basically a concert film that he spent a couple of days making, was that uh, Warner Brothers offered him, you know, a certain number of hours on the company jet. Um, so, you know, I think there are all kinds of reasons to, he made movies. I think there are all kinds of good reasons he made movies. But yeah, you have to acknowledge that that uh, careers aren't perfectly curated any more than lives are oh, something kind of serendipitous or magical happens towards the end of his career where you know wit is not a film that i think he was planning on making but that that i mean something the book illuminates really well is that in between each film there are between one and four different plays that he's working on or or maybe <laughs> producing and not everyone can you know i grew up in tulsa oklahoma i i have not seen those stage plays i have no access to them but it kind of coalesces with wit and angels in America of like, Oh yeah, this guy who is a brilliant theater director and a brilliant film director brings these two worlds together in a really miraculous way towards the end of his, uh, you know, directing career that I think really, I don't know, it kind of like comes together a bit with for me specifically with wit and angels in America of, um, these two plays that have a lot of different themes going on that may or may not relate to Mike personally, um, but are just really kind of brilliant adaptations that I can't necessarily see, you know, um, 
another director who's not as well-versed in the theater world doing as, as good of a job with those. Right. And what moves him into those is initially a big failure. What planet are you from? I mean, Mike, Mike had a lot of his greatest creative successes after flops. I mean, after the fortune, he does streamers, which many people feel is the best thing he ever did on stage. Um, But yeah, I think toward the end of his career, um, you know, Mike never wanted to direct the movie version of anything he had directed on stage. He was very clear about that from the beginning. He just had no interest in it. And of course he was offered, you know, every Neil Simon play that he ever uh, directed. And the only one he ever directed on film was one he didn't direct on stage, Biloxi Blues. But I think once you get to Wit and Angels, and I would say in a way uh, Closer, which is the first movie he makes after Angels, you have three straight adaptations of plays in a row. And he really, in those three movies, gets to let both sides of his creative personality live. All of the things that he loves about doing plays, which is, you know, taking two actors through a long, complicated scene, and all of the things he loves about making movies, which are things you can't do when you direct a play, come together uh, uh, in in many ways in, in those films. So I think it was a very happy, very fruitful period of his career, you know, that was uh, ironically made possible by a flop. Are there any directors working today that you sort of see as, I would say, maybe heirs to Mike Nichols' legacy or, or who remind you, or do you find him more of a singular figure who it's very difficult to sort of reproduce what he was and what he did? I find him pretty unique. And and I, I wish that um, uh, more directors uh, embraced the particular values that he embraced. I think that the stuff that he loved uh, in movies, which is really acute social observation, um, really specific, beautifully developed performances, um, uh, equitable and enthusiastic collaboration with writers, um, I think are, are values that I would love to see more of uh, in contemporary movies alongside uh, the equally cool priorities of, of other directors. Um, I, I will say that, you know, um, Mike was very, very fond of Steven Soderbergh who uh, he got to know, you know, late in life, um, but he really admired his work. And Soderbergh was uh, able to convince him to do commentary tracks for his first three movies, which are absolutely invaluable. And I really wish that project had continued. I would have loved to hear, you know, his, his uh, carnal knowledge commentary track or even his Day of the Dolphin commentary track. Um, but I think when I look at um, when I look at Steven Soderbergh's work, I do see um, a, a lot of the values that that I love in uh, Mike Nichols's work, including the fact that you never know what he's going to go toward next. That that he really he is ruled in the best possible way by his um, enthusiasms and his interests and his passions and by problems he wants to solve and by questions he wants to answer. And you cannot look at a Steven Soderbergh film and extrapolate from it a single thing about what his next movie is going to be. Um, and, and that's one thing I love about um, 
both Steven Soderbergh and Mike Nichols. Well, they both feel like writer-directors who are not writer-directors, but who have very fruitful collaborations with the writers on the films. There, there's something unmistakable about whether it's line deliveries or behavior that, that happens in those films that feel very, very much of them without them being, you know, like a Paul Thomas Anderson who is writing and directing his own thing. Right. I mean, Mike was not a writer-director. The, you know, the only writing credit he has is a, a, a co-credit on Wit, which is basically the play. Um, uh, and... I think partly because he didn't see himself as a writer, uh, there's no instance in which he ever became competitive with a writer. I mean, he he loved writers. He he um, he, he he loved uh, the idea of screenwriting. He once said that his definition of style was taking whatever a writer uh, had written and realizing it in a way that made it completely credible that, that that was what he thought directorial style was all about which is an incredibly humble and interesting description of directing by a director i it's i'm hard pressed to imagine which director would describe style that way now but it's a it's a pretty interesting notion of what a director's job is do you think that humility towards writing kind of sprang from his work as an improviser and sort of understanding how difficult it is just to come up with something on the spot compared to working on it alone and sort of that process of screenwriting? I, th I think so. I mean, I tried to put into the book early on a few examples of uh, Nichols and May failing, you know, of the times when they just couldn't land a sketch or couldn't crack an idea because uh, Mike really did understand um, how, how hard it was uh, to be a writer. And that's not to say he wouldn't give writers notes. You know, he, he, he did. He absolutely did when, when he would say something like, this still isn't working or, you know, there's something about this scene that you haven't cracked. He did that as a theater director and as a movie director. But at the same time that he did that, uh, he would say, there's nobody more qualified to figure out what a character is supposed to be saying or doing than the writer. And sometimes a writer may need nudging to figure it out, but it should always be the writer who figures it out. Well, while we have you here, we're almost out of time, but you, you're an Oscar scholar and <laughs> I'd be remiss if I didn't, if we didn't get your thoughts on a, a unique, a, a unique year in the Oscar race. And I was just kind of curious, I mean, what, what do you make of, of this season right now that we're in where from my view, it doesn't even seem like we have front runners really it's just i mean you know the golden globes have chimed in and they're what they are but we just had sag chime in and they were oddly similar to each other um and i was just kind of curious on your thoughts on on where we are right now the return of jared leto <laughs> <laughs> yeah no comment about that um, I, I um i think uh it's a strange year you know i think the thing that might shock people is the degree to which oscar voters are not really tuned into this whole thing right now like if you talk to a lot of them especially outside of la what you hear is when are the oscars was i supposed to vote already there they are happening this year right i'm getting screeners like it's it's nobody's priority right now right like everyone's just trying to get through this incredibly tough time and everybody's trying to get through a day hoping that between the time you get up and the time you go to bed some shocking thing hasn't happened in the news right so what does that mean for uh the oscars like what are the oscars like in, in a year in which 
um, it's really hard to be obsessive about the Oscars. Like, I think, I think people are seeing the movies that they're supposed to see. And I think one, um, one benefit of the extra long season is that everyone will get through their screener piles, you know, that they, they will watch the, the smaller stuff. But um, I think maybe even more than usual, the Oscars um, might end up taking their cues from all of the stuff that's happening on the way to the Oscars, just because, you know, I don't think anybody is kind of putting it front of mind. Um, we'll see if that's different, I guess, in in March, is it? When, when people actually start voting on the nominations, that seems so bizarre and wrong. peculiar to me. It just feels you know? wrong. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really strange. Um, I, I mean, I think there's a set of uh, really good, interesting movies, but it just doesn't seem like the year to have screaming fights about who got robbed for Best Supporting Actress. You know, it's, 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 it's hard to kind of put your back into it the way you usually would. But, um, but I think there's good stuff out there. And the other, you know, the other big X factor besides the 14 month season, the pandemic, the, the everything of it is, is um, that still the, the body of Oscar voters has changed so dramatically in the last four or five years in ways that we have not fully grappled with yet. Um, that I don't think we can, we can talk about what an Academy movie is, what, uh, um, what the Academy thinks, what the town thinks, the way we used to. It's a it's a much uh, more diverse in every way, uh, diverse votership than than we're used to, and so maybe that will yield some surprises. I do think one one thing is that like the the sort of post December wave of movies um, is is going to get a little bit more attention, you know. It, things like Judas and the Black Messiah, um, which seem to kind of miss the whole 2020 part of the Oscars. Um, I, I think, you know, we, we could see figure in a little bit. I don't think there's any equivalent this year to the, the annual problem of, well, it came out on December 28th and that was just too late and people didn't have a chance to see it. I think people are going to have a chance to see everything they're supposed to see. And so we'll see if that's reflected in the, the nominations. It is interesting because it feels like in years past, the the voters may or may not, I have no idea, use it, uh, but have a cheat sheet in terms of like Silver Linings Playbook exploded at TIFF. It's all anyone can talk about. So that's going to the top of my pile. Or did you see how this movie is doing at the specialty box office? Everyone's going to see it this is at the top of my pile. Whereas right. this year there was kind of none of that. And as you so said, you in the Black Messiah. TIFF is your computer. And, yeah. And when Indie Box Office is your laptop, I mean, <laughs> there, there's no, and when that really cool Lifetime Achievement Award that uh, that guy uh, got at that film festival only happened in your Twitter feed. You know, it's, if everything's virtual, does that kind of level the playing field a little bit? Maybe, maybe it does. I was looking at the um, Critics' Choice nominations, which came out, I guess, just before uh, we started talking. And they seem to nominate like seven or eight actors in each category. And so I thought maybe, maybe those awards have now become the equivalent of kind of the BAFTA long list. Maybe yeah. they're sort of a way of saying, okay, well, 
I should pick from these eight or I should pick from these seven, you know? Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. The The book was a joy to read. It's it, just a pleasure talking with you about Mike Nichols and it really sort of changed the way I view the art of directing. Um, so thank you so much. Thanks. I couldn't be happier to hear that. Yeah. It, it, by the time I reached the end, I, I was welling up with tears because I felt like someone I knew had just died. Oh, it was wow. really just beautifully, beautifully Thank written. You. That, that really means a lot to me. Thanks. And I also would be remiss if I didn't mention, we're speaking of Oscars, that Matt and I are both massive fans of Lincoln. And that film, <laughs> I, we feel, has only grown in esteem over the years uh, and is top tier Spielberg. Wow. Well, I will pass that along. That will make the household <laughs> happy. So thank you. We love that movie. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much, and uh, congratulations on the book, um, and uh, hopefully we can have you on again in the future sometime. It was a pleasure talking to you. I love that. Pleasure talking to you. All right. Well, thanks again to Mark Harris, and again, the book is Mike Nichols, A Life, which you can order now at your favorite book retailer. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.